We've been talking a lot <clears throat> throughout this course about practicing vipassana in the spirit of metta. So what I want to talk about tonight is what exactly does that mean? And I'd like to do it by talking about what would vipassana instructions sound like if we never mentioned the word metta? What would metta instructions sound like on their own? They're both different practices. How do they interrelate? I thought I would start by telling you of an experience that I had fairly recently. In January of this year, I did several weeks of intensive practice, and the first half of it was doing metta practice, intensive metta practice. That was all I did. And after some time of doing the metta practice, switched over to doing vipassana practice. And shortly thereafter, when I came in to see my teacher, with whom I'd been working all the way through on my practice, I came in for an interview. And I came in with a burst of enthusiasm, and I said, it's just the same. It's the same practice. You just love every moment. It's the same practice. And then I left, and about two minutes after I left, I thought, what a fool I am. It's not the same practice at all. You do it entirely differently. The technique is entirely different. In the, in the sense of yogi mind, which Carol mentioned yesterday, I not only felt foolish, I felt sort of really foolish. And I thought to myself, goodness, and I'm supposed to be teaching this stuff. So I could hardly wait for my next interview <laughs> so that I could come and say, listen, I know it's not the same. I get it. I know that there are different instructions and different practices. And then as the days continued and I had more interviews, I came back and I said, it's just the same. <laughs> so I'd like to start with that as a kind of a, a metta vipassana koan for you. And I'd like to talk about the two practices. And I'd like to let you decide about whether they're the same or how they're the same and how they're not the same. So we'll talk about some definitions, and we'll start with vipassana practice. This is vipassana practice that we've been doing together. And I'll read you a formal definition again, again from Soli Laris, who I like a lot, whose book I like a lot. He has a uh, formal definition of instructions. This practice combines the practice of being focused and calm in the present moment with the practice of watchfulness and attentiveness to what the actual nature of experience is, using as our laboratory our total organism, the body with its five senses, and the mind that operates in and through it. That's a formal definition, but that's really the whole instruction. Over time, I've collected catchphrases that either my teachers have said or various people I've worked with have said that seem to me to capture really what is the flavor of the instructions? Somebody said the other day, I feel like I'm spending a lot of time in a state of relaxed alertness. I said, good, this is a practice of relaxed alertness. I just now remember that in my very first retreat in uh, the summer of 1977, uh, when I was just becoming familiar with the notion of watching things arise in the mind and naming them, noting them as they arose, as they arose. I remember coming to see Jack in an interview and being really excited about what I had discovered about practice. And I said, 
this is just like being on sentry duty. You just stay really vigilant and watch everything that's coming. And he said, well, no, it's not like being on sentry duty because sentries are vigilant and they're on guard. They're guarding something. They're guarding something against something. This is a practice of vigilance, but it's not a guarded practice of vigilance. It's an open practice of vigilance. So it's an open practice of vigilance that you do with a relaxed alertness. A couple of years ago, I was listening to Carol give a talk, and she used the phrase radical acceptance. And I thought, that's what it is. It's radical acceptance. So it's all of the above. You know those answers where it's A, B, C, D, all of the above? To fight with nothing. That's another description that I like a lot. To let everything in, not to fight with anything. To allow the moment, to accept the moment, to surrender to the moment, to trust the moment. Somebody once said, this practice is being at home in the universe. Just being open to everything. That's what we've done all these ten days. We've just started in a systematic way to open the mind to all of the experiences that arise, starting with the experiences of the breath, and then expanding that to include all body sensations, to expand it to include feelings of pleasant and unpleasant, neutral feelings, mind states, the contents of mind, thoughts, insights, sounds around us, all the whole panoply of things that go to make up the experience of being alive. We've systematically opened the awareness to be in touch with all of them and to allow all of them. Not only to allow all of them, but to be able to receive them in a way that's light and open, to be able to see them arise and pass away easily, not having to be guarded in any experience, not having to say, well, I'll have this and this and this experience, I'll have almost all the experiences, but this particular experience, that one I won't have. Not doing that, being open to all experience. It's really the ultimate freedom. It's like saying, here I am, world, this is me. Do you remember there's a book called... uh, Born to Win. It's a transactional analysis book. And I actually don't know what's in it. I think I've never read it. I've just looked at the cover. And it's got a terrific cover. Do you remember the cover? It's the cover is a picture of a child, photo of a child, with the back of the child facing you. I am convinced it's a girl child, but there's no way to know that from the picture. It just seems to me to be a girl child. Back of the child is facing you, and the child is facing the ocean. And she has her arms wide apart. And she is standing in a stance that says, here I am, world. I accept it. I'm here. It's a wonderful picture. I look at that picture and I think, that's the sense that I would like to have of how to move about in life. Here I am, world. It's really the ultimate freedom. Still thinking about instructions for Vipassana practice, because I'm the kind of person that likes to play with words, And because the words of our instructions are traditionally fairly complex and we develop them over time, over days, I think to myself sometimes, what if I had to give the whole instruction in eight words? I made up eight words because that's what I can do it in. 
<laughs> and then I play with the notion that maybe the instruction is keep your heart calm and your mind open. Or keep your mind calm and your heart open. It's the same instruction. And then I think to myself, well, that's very easy to say. And I do know that it's hard to do. And that's why we need to practice so much. (laughs) But in fact, every moment of life experience gives you an opportunity to do that practice. Every moment gives you an opportunity to say, can I be at ease in this moment? Can I really open to being in this moment? Rather than wishing that this moment were over, so that some other moment, a good moment, a moment that we like better, will arise. Can I really be present in this moment? Knowing that every mind moment conditions the next, and that to whatever degree I am able to be fully present and at ease in this moment, to that degree is my next moment conditioned with openness and ease. So mind and heart open. The other night when Jack was talking, he talked about a big part of his path in his practice, in in his meditational practice, in his life practice, was the sense of wanting to love more. When I characterize my own practice, I usually say it as, I want to really be fearless. I think they're the same too. I think that mind and heart open are the same, and mind and heart open makes us fearless and totally loving. Those are the instructions for this practice, and the goal of this practice is freedom. It's the freedom that comes from seeing clearly, and seeing clearly depends on having a mind and heart that are clear and that are open. Do you remember the other night I read you a quote from Tranquility and Insight? I'll read you a piece of that quote again. It's about my favorite quote. I love these two sentences. Here they are. It is through the mindful observation of what is actually there that the delusion that makes us perceive that which is impermanent and transient as permanent and lasting is gradually dispelled. Liberation consists in experiencing and understanding fully and clearly that everything is impermanent and seeing that there is quite literally nothing to worry about. Everything is impermanent and there is quite literally nothing to worry about. That so inspires me. I think to myself, do you know, that I think it was the French philosopher Pascal who had a spontaneous mystical awareness of the truth and was totally liberated in his thinking, delighted for the rest of his life, and wrote down the nature of his experience, what he had seen in that experience, on a piece of paper, and sewed it into the lining of his coat, and wore that coat every single day, and died with the coat on. And sometimes I think to myself, if I had to choose a sentence to write down on a piece of paper and sew into the lining of my coat, it would probably be that sentence to know that everything is impermanent and that there is quite literally nothing to worry about. When you see clearly, when you're free, I think that you'd really be fearless, and I think that we'd be open to love everything, 
not just every person, but every experience. It's a story about Suzuki Roshi, who was the founding abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center, who died of throat cancer and quite a painful death. And that in the final stages of his illness, as his pain was progressing, he talked to his disciples, his students, and he said, you know, if when I'm dying, I seem to be in a lot of pain, please don't be upset about it. That's just suffering Buddha. I understand it to mean that that's just another aspect of life experience. There's a way of being open totally to life experience, understanding that it's coming up and it's passing away. It's happening because of conditions. It's just the way it is. There's another story that really moves me a lot, and this is not a Buddhist story, but Buddha Dharma is not the only Dharma. It's an expression of the truth. Heinz Pagels was an, uh, a physicist, and he died about two years ago, I think, in a climbing accident. He was a mountain climber. And he wrote a number of really wonderful books on physics that are very understandable to lay readers. He had a great gift for that. And I really think that in his vision, perhaps his practice was the study of physics, he really got it. He really understood that all of experience is in flux, that it's all changing, that it's all interrelated, and that it's all fine. And in the end of the Cosmic Code, which was published just a few months before he died, he, in the final paragraph, actually, of the last page of the Cosmic Code, he talks about the fact that people ask him often why he does mountain climbing. That's a, a, a sport with some amount of risk. And he said, I climb because it's exciting to push the limit, that there's something really exciting to be totally awake in your mind and your body, which is a thing that climbing really requires. And he says... I, he said, I think about dying in a fall. He said, all climbers have nightmares about dying in a fall. He said, I, I had a nightmare recently, though, he said, in which I was climbing, and my foot slipped, and I clutched onto the rock, and I lost my footing, and then the rock gave way, and I fell out into space. And he said, and in the dream... For a moment, I was terrified. And then he said, in the dream, then I let go. And as I fell, I sang to the stars, and I made my peace with the darkness. So what happens else when you can see clearly? You get to be fearless. You get to be able to love every experience. You can really love everyone equally with, with a certain amount of clear seeing. You can see that even people whose actions are difficult for you are really motivated by fear and ignorance. And that there's a way of being open to them as people struggling with the human experience just as we are. And we become compassionate because with some amount of clarity and clear seeing and alertness, we realize how much suffering there is in the world. Not just the regular suffering that comes from being born in a body and getting old and getting infirm and dying and losing people, but the suffering that's extra, the suffering that 
gets added to the to the scene to the drama by by ignorance by fear we get to really refine our ability to rejoice and appreciate those moments of wonder those moments of specialness we realize that there are so many difficult moments in life experience so many pains that moments of joy are really special. Begin to really not only appreciate our own pleasure, but other people's pleasures. We get to have a certain equanimity, a certain balance with whatever is coming up, knowing that whatever is coming up is passing away. So there's a certain ease of mind. So that's Vipassana practice. Those are the instructions. Those are the goals. I'll talk about metta practice a little bit and metta spirit. There is a formal metta practice that people do all by itself, quite apart from vipassana practice. The word metta has the same root as the word friend. So in a way, this is the path of friendliness. It's a practice that conditions the heart to be absolutely open to everyone and everything. There's a meta quiz in scripture. I'll tell you the quiz. It's kind of a riddle. Here's the riddle. You're walking in a forest and you're walking with four people. You're walking with your teacher whom you love very much and to whom you're very devoted. You're walking with a close friend who you love a lot. Also with you is a person that you don't know at all, that you feel fairly neutral about. Also in your walking party is your enemy. That's a scripture word for it. Enemy is a heavy word, but person that you have real difficulties with. And you're in the forest and you're uh, confronted by a desperado who for some reason says, one of your part, I'm going to kill one of your party. And you need to choose. You're the person who chooses who. So that's a difficult choice. How do you choose? I won't tell you the answer to the riddle yet. You can have that riddle too for a while. I'll tell you two stories that have to do with that riddle that happened about 20 years ago, I guess. One is up, must have been about 20 years ago. My youngest daughter was a very serious ballet student. And... Um, I went to lots of performances of the Nutcracker, really lots of performances of the Nutcracker. <laughs> and if you're familiar with it, there's a party scene in Act One and lots of children in it. And the truth is that I did see the other children in the party scene, but I pretty much just saw my child. And when she was on stage, I watched her really closely had particular pleasure from the fact that she was on stage. Not only that, when she was one of the eight sets of legs under the Chinese dragon, I knew which legs were hers. (laughs) And it was about that time that I really became interested in spiritual practice and spiritual search. And somehow I got the idea from something I heard that one of the criteria for liberation would be that it would be all the same to me 
whoever's child was the Snow Queen. (laughs) And I thought to myself, I'll never make it. (laughs) About the same time, Ram Das was starting to teach, and I loved him, and I love him, and I was devoted to his teaching. And I remember him saying that the essence of a free mind was the ability to say to people whom you were with in that moment, this very moment, I love you more than anyone else in the world, and if I never see you again, that'll be perfectly all right. And again, I thought to myself, I'm never going to make it. I have way too many people to whom I have a particular kind of affinity and a glue with which I'm attached. I stopped worrying about that over the 20 years because there's another way in which I hold that realization now. I really do think that there is a special glue between the people that are our intimates and our family and our parents and our children and our wives and our husbands and our sisters and our brothers and our very close friends. There is a special glue. And I also get it that there is a really special pleasure in expanding the boundaries of family so that I really feel everybody to be my family. There's a special pleasure in that and there's a special freedom in that. And there's two ways in which I, I, I really feel that happens. But, you know, in, in Buddhist tradition, there's the notion of uh, the fact that through multitudes of lifetimes, We have all been each other's mother and each other's child and each other's sister and brother and lover and husband and wife. And so on some level, in that tradition, that's a way of understanding how we're all interrelated. Even just in this lifetime, as we begin to really be in touch with our own feelings and our own experience, our own life experience, and begin to appreciate that our experience is just the same as everyone else's experience, then everyone else becomes our family as well. I have tremendous pleasure watching the Nutcracker now in knowing that somebody else's child is a Snow Queen. Actually, sometimes I think about it. I'll be watching a performance of a ballet and seeing an exquisite dancer, and I'll think to myself, I wonder if her mother is here. And I have a special pleasure out of that. And it's not just limited to the ballet. You know, if you watch a football game on television, somebody's child threw that foot, that touchdown pass into the end zone, and somebody else's child caught it in the end zone. And more often than not, the camera immediately switches over to show you whose. And you see, and you see their mother and their father and their wives and their children, and you feel tremendous joy with them. And I'm really clear that you don't need to be a mother to be able to do that. You don't need to be a father to be able to do that. You only need to be a person and know about feelings. You need to be acquainted with joy. Metta practice is a practice that acquaints us with joy. And it's the joy that opens us increasingly to be able to love everybody in a really even-handed way. And then to love everything about experience in an even-handed way. So here's the practice of metta, all by itself. I'll tell you the instructions for it. When people begin to practice metta, they think of themselves, first of all, I'm very impressed with what a psychologist the Buddha was. 
really had tremendous insight about personal psychological functioning. He said, it's really not possible to love other people fully unless you can be really open to yourself, unless you can really love yourself. So you need to start with yourself. And he also said that sometimes it's difficult to wish well to people, to yourself or to other people. We are blocked with bad feelings about ourselves or bad feelings about other people. And he said the best way, the immediate way to bring about a feeling of friendliness, a feeling of lovingness, a feeling of forgiveness, a feeling of acceptance about ourselves or about other people is to think something good that that person did. The line in scripture is the proximal cause of the arousal of metta, is thinking the good that somebody did. So when you start with yourself, you think about something really good about yourself that you did that you feel good about. In the course of this retreat, I've been thinking and saying that we should all feel good about the fact that we came. We came with sincerity and desire to practice. So we begin with yourself. You think something good about yourself. And you cultivate loving feelings towards yourself. And there are particular phrases that derive from 2,500 years of practice that people have used and used and used that cultivate a sense of friendliness towards oneself. And the phrases are these. May I be free from danger. May I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being. And you say them over and over and over again. At the same time, you think about someone who's especially beloved to you. In scripture, it's usually suggested that you think about your teacher, towards whom it's presumed that you would have totally open feelings of love and devotion and gratitude. Gratitude is really the emotion that opens the heart most fully. So you think about your teacher, you hold the teacher in your mind, and you say about them, may you be free from danger. May you have mental happiness. May you have physical happiness. May you have ease of well-being. And it cultivates a tremendous joy in the heart. You feel wonderful to be wishing well to somebody that you love. And wishing well to somebody that you love a lot, which brings up a lot of joy and rapture in the body, really allows you to wish that more strongly towards yourself. And then by and by, you keep on expanding the range of that wishing. So you make the same wishes towards a friend that you love a lot. May you be free from danger. May you have mental happiness. May you have physical happiness. May you have ease of well-being. And by and by, as you're feeling good increases, feeling of lovingness, feeling of ease, feeling of joy in the body, feeling of contentment in the body, You expand that well-wishing to people you don't know at all, people who are neutral to you, people you pass, people you see. And by and by, in the course of really cultivating the sense of friendliness, openness, lovingness, and really enjoying the wonderful feeling that it gives you to be feeling love towards everyone, you're really able more and more to open your heart, even to people with whom you have difficulty. 
somebody who's a difficult person in your experience. There's a a list in scripture of the benefits that accrue to people who do metta practice. These are the benefits that come from doing metta practice. You sleep easily, you wake easily, you dream peaceful dreams. And people love you. And devas love you. And devas protect you. And poison and weapons and fire can't harm you. Your face will be clear, your mind will be serene, you die unconfused, and when you die, your rebirth is in the Brahma realms. That's wonderful, isn't it? (laughs) I say that over and over and over to myself. that over and over and over to myself. I really do. My sense of that, how I understand that, what it means to me, is that you become protected, that you feel safe. You're not protected from difficult things happening. It's not magic. It doesn't save you from difficult things happening in your life. I think it protects you from perturbation, protects you from suffering. Have the sense of, it's all okay, it's just what's happening. I knew a woman who died in her mid-thirties of, uh, of cancer and was nursed in her dying by her mother. It really has to be the most difficult thing to do, is to take care of your adult child as it dies. And uh, both Mary and her mother were very devout in their spiritual practice. And in the very last minutes, moments of Mary's life, there was a lot of physical distress, and she was having trouble breathing, and a lot of alarm came up in her. And her mother was able to hold on to her and say, It's all right, Mary, you're just dying. Imagine being able to do that. Imagine being so protected. It's all right, Mary, you're just dying. And there are mind states that develop as you continue to do metta practice. Mind begins by feeling loving and spacious and open to everyone have a sense of sending love to everyone. And then what emerges is a sense of compassion. You really realize what suffering is existing. You're able really to be compassionate with other people and their experience. And a sense of sympathetic joy arises, an appreciation of the joys in this life, 
the special events in this life, really being aware, keeping fully in touch with how much there is that's painful in this life. And the basic unsatisfactoriness of all life experience to then really be able to relish and savor those moments of specialness. New rabbits, new baby birds, new grandchildren. You can really enjoy the moment. <laughs> and a sense of equanimity arises, sense of balance. You can be quite steady. Now this is happening, and now this is happening, and now this is happening, and now this is happening. So they begin to look a little bit the same, don't they? We've said the same kinds of characteristics. We've mentioned love and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity in conjunction with both practices. What's the difference between them? They look the same. This is my sense of difference. In Vipassana practice, the goal is insight, an insight which leads to freedom. And all of those mind states are mind states that are quite spontaneously present in a mind that's free and open and at ease. They're just part of an open, free, easy mind. In metta practice, wonderful as it is, those mind states depend on the practice of concentration. They're conditioned by concentration. They're present because concentration is happening. They're wonderful mind states, but by themselves they're not freedom. Freedom really comes from insight, from seeing what's true. And those mind states are wonderful conditioners to condition the mind so that it can be clear and open and see what's true. They're mind and heart conditioners so that we can stay present and see what's true. So that leaves two questions. If they are mind and heart conditioners, and if we can use them in conjunction with the practice of insight, practice of mindfulness, in order to see clearly, in order to be free, how much should we use it? A little, a lot? part of the practice, a small part of the practice, when should we use it? I think there isn't one answer to that. Do you know the expression uh, PRN in conjunction with taking medicine? Do you know that? Sometimes you get a medicine and it says take it twice a day, sometimes take four times a day. Some says take it PRN, that means when you need it. My own practice of Vipassana In my own practice, I use the metta practice PRN, when I need it, in this way. My practice is very much to try to stay open in the most calm way to all of my experience, every aspect of it, as it arises. When, for whatever reason, the experience arising is too frightful, too agitating, too disequilibrating, too upsetting, too difficult, one of the things that makes it possible for me to stay present is to either do some metta by reciting those phrases or just to feel for myself the spirit of metta. May I be peaceful. May I be happy. 
May I be peaceful. May I be happy. May I be open to this moment. May I be present for my next moment of experience. It's kind of like going along and going along and going along and then losing your balance a little bit and say, whoa, I need to have something to balance me a little bit. And by and by, you don't really need to think about, well, now I'll do X and now I'll do Y. They become quite a normal part of your practice and they become really natural. The other question that I still haven't answered is, what's the answer to the riddle? Do you know the answer to the riddle? The answer to the riddle is, you can't choose. And the other answer to it is, you can't choose and you're not frightened. That's the answer to the riddle. talk about one more thing, though. I want to say, what if we practice vipassana and we never mentioned the word metta? We often do that. Is there such a thing as vipassana practice without the spirit of metta? I think there isn't. I think that when we talk about it in a conscious way and we teach people a particular formula to cultivate a feeling of metta, a feeling of friendliness in the mind, that may be helpful, and I hope it is. But I think that the practice of vipassana actually presupposes the spirit of metta in the mind. When we ask people to practice, when we practice, when we practice and we say to ourselves or to someone, try to be open to the next moment, allow the next moment, surrender to the next moment, receive the moment, accept the moment, We're really asking people to be present in the spirit of metta, to be open and even-handed in greeting all of their experience, to be a friend of the moment. We could do it all and never mention the word metta. The practice is to condition a heart that opens in each moment and accepts each moment as a friend, I'd like to finish uh, by uh, reading the Metta Sutta because people have been listening to it and hearing it and saying it thousands and thousands and thousands of time, times over 2,500 years. So I'd like to suggest that you hear it in that, in as contemplative a spirit and pose that you can. May all beings be happy, whatever their living nature, 
whether long or large, medium-sized or small, coarse or fine, omitting none, those that can be seen and those that cannot, those that are near and those that are far away, those that are already born and those that are yet to be. May none deceive another, nor despise anyone on any grounds, nor with anger or thoughts of hate should beings ever wish one another harm. Just as a mother would give her life to protect her one and only child, just so should we towards all beings boundlessly open our minds. With loving kindness towards all beings, should we boundlessly open our minds, above, below, and all around, free from narrowness, ill will, and hate. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be happy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.